No sooner than OSHA's COVID-19 vaccination and testing emergency temporary standard was issued, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals stayed its enforcement on legal challenge. But the stay is temporary, and with COVID case counts in the country averaging more than 1,100 deaths per day from the disease, a decision on the standard will likely be swift. I'm Larry Stewart with Four Construction Pros, and on this Digging Deeper podcast, I had a wide-ranging conversation about the emergency standard with Gary Pierce. Chief Risk Architect at Risk Management Technology Provider Acclaimant. In this part one podcast, Pierce talks about the ambitions of the standard, how it can change all employers' responsibilities to employees, and the quickly approaching compliance deadlines. The temporary standard, as as you see it, Gary, uh, what is it trying to accomplish, uh, and and what are the sort of broad strokes? Well, you know. Um, doing my best to take any uh, personal viewpoints out of it, I think a, a fair and objective statement would be that it is the uh, U.S. government's attempt to get as many people vaccinated as possible, and they're using uh, uh, private employers as uh, an instrument to get that done. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I think that that's necessary to uh, put the COVID crisis behind us. Sure, sure. And so they're, they're, they're uh, very forcefully uh, uh, requiring vaccinations as a condition of employment uh, for for many, if not most, employers. You have a rather funky 100 headcount threshold here, which has a couple twists to it that, that are kind of interesting. Really? Like like what? Well, for example, number one, it's only applicable to employers with 100 workers or more. Um, so you could have 95 people concentrated in one little room. And if that's your only, only workplace, then you aren't required by the standard to, uh, to comply with it. Uh, conversely, if you have 102 employees and you choose to uh, terminate three of them in order to get under the headcount count, that doesn't work. Uh, it was the headcount as of November 5, the day that the rule got published. So uh, if you fall under that, you're still susceptible. But if you go over it, you become susceptible. Yeah. Uh, thirdly, uh, let's say you fall into the 100 plus category. Uh, it is then only applicable to those people who aren't working uh, remotely full time uh, or outdoors full time. So you could have um, some sort of contractor operation, particularly in construction, where everybody's outside all the time. And you could have more than 100 employees, but if um, if the vast majority of your people are working outdoors 100% of the time, then you might only have a handful of office staff who you really need to adhere to the rule for. You have 105 people in your workforce, 90 of them work outdoors 100% of the time, you're still covered by the, by the rule. Okay. But regarding those 90, most of the things aren't applicable. Including the requirement for testing every seven days or vaccination? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yep. yep. Yeah. It's working from home or exclusively outdoors. There's a de minimis uh, standard regarding the outdoor work. And uh, I, I don't know how that'll be enforced in practice. But uh, yeah, that, that's, the way it, that's the way it works. What does a de minimis standard mean? Well, like if if you uh, step into the into a building to hand in a time card for twenty seconds once a week, that 
that probably wouldn't count as indoor work. I see. But yeah. if you're going to show up for a half hour meeting, that's that's going to count. Okay. I would think. I see. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, um, the the uh, what what's the position then on uh, uh, what what what's your take on uh, OSHA's um, responsibility to secure uh, the safety of of workers relative to this standard? Well, as a general proposition, OSHA didn't have enough staffing to uh, meet all the demands for enforcement and investigations and inspections before COVID arose. And although OSHA is getting more resources, there is no way on earth that OSHA will be able to proactively evaluate every workplace or every employer, or even necessarily to timely respond to every inquiry or question or investigation uh, request or incident report that comes in. Uh, but they will hit some. Uh, and, um, you know, the fact that there's a backlog doesn't mean that OSHA won't eventually get to it. Meanwhile, I think one of the more interesting things about these standards, Larry, is that although you have the written standard, you have at least a couple other relevant dimensions to it. One is that notwithstanding the language of the standard, you have the so-called OSHA general duty clause, which people in construction are pretty familiar with, which in kind of plain English says, regardless of whether there's a, an on-point rule or not, you got to do whatever you have to do to protect people from, from imminent hazards or actual hazards um, that could endanger them. Having this extensive body of new COVID rules to me raises the stakes and raises the expectations with regard to the general duty. So even if you have my scenario of 90 people concentrated in one room, you're, you're de facto going to be held to this standard or something close to it because it is expressive of the general duty. Oh, okay. Second big observation I would make would be that even though OSHA's firepower is limited by their staffing, and we'll get into their penalties in a moment, the fact that an employer has ostensibly violated an OSHA rule it's going to be a very unfavorable fact in other circumstances and forums. For example, if there is a lawsuit regarding a workplace injury or incident, and yes, many of them are precluded by the exclusive remedy provisions of workers' comp, but if there is, and if a, uh, a plaintiff's advocate can point to a violation of an OSHA standard and present credible evidence that that was indeed the case, then it may not matter that much whether OSHA actually came in and assessed a penalty. Your failure to adhere to a published standard, evidence of that is going to erode the, the employer's case. Yeah. And so whether that's in other regulatory contexts, um, whether it's in the course of a lawsuit or whether it's in the course of employment related litigation, uh, it's still gonna be relevant. And what I mean by that employment-related litigation, we all see that when employees kind of get in trouble, they start throwing stuff against the wall. And I don't mean to thereby imply that all of their concerns are illegitimate, but stuff tends to come up. 
And if an employee is in a dispute with their employer, um, if they get kind of desperate, they're going to bring up real or imagined uh, anecdotes about other things that the employer has done wrong and uh, create a pretext that you're doing this in the way of retaliation. It's not a coincidence that OSHA has some pretty strong anti-retaliation language in this new regulation. And in fact, one of the things that employers have to do is tell their own workforce about the anti-retaliation provisions. Huh. They're, they're concerned about um, having uh, information quashed or uh, employers... Um, enforcing a uh, keep your mouth shut kind of policy. Ah, I see. I see. Well, so we talked about uh, the standards application to employers of over 100 people, and we, t we talked a little about December 5th. So wh what uh, what are the, the uh, compliance uh, issues, the main compliance issues associated with this, and how should employers uh, um, prepare if, if if anything what are some some smart things employers can do right now uh realizing that you know essentially we're a month away from the first deadlines on this thing so something is something's going to happen uh yeah. in 30 days or 25 days and, and and larry it seems to me pretty pretty irresponsible to count on there being a delay in the deadlines in other words, you're really risking it if you say, well, I'm going to sit back and wait and see how this legal stuff plays out. Uh, because there's a good chance that the dates will stick. Uh, and to whatever extent the federal government wins, it's doubtful that the deadlines will be stretched. This is, after all, an emergency temporary standard. So right. when we go back to the depth of the COVID crisis last you know, spring of 2020, most states, in fact, nearly all of them, issued some sort of executive order, uh, and they varied, but requiring employers to do certain things in response to the COVID crisis. Since then, there has been plenty of guidance from OSHA, from the Centers for Disease Control, from various state public health agencies, and what have you. So through combinations of advice, guidance, and mandates, and in fact, often guidance that in fact had the force of law and was more than guidance. It's not the case that come December 5, for the very first time, employers have to have COVID programs in place. This is more old news than not. What's new is some specifics in the program. So as a consequence, uh, again, there won't be a whole lot of patience for organizations that really aren't ready However, some of the things that are new are going to be pretty darn difficult. Uh, and so this December 5 deadline is a big deal, but it's on top of what had already been a big deal, I guess is what I would say. Sure, sure. Well, what are some of the, those new elements and what has to be in place by December 5th? Yeah, so um, let, let's go through the, the obligations and kind of tick off which ones are, are new and what isn't one is to determine and record the vaccination status of each employee um second is a roster of employees vaccination status that roster is new 
Meanwhile, employers have to obtain and record a copy of the proof of vaccination for all vaccinated employees. Mm -hmm. With a couple notable exceptions, uh, A being healthcare uh, and B being federal contractors, uh, requirement. In other words, you did not have a federal OSHA requirement other than the general duty clause that was applicable to employers in general other than federal contractors and healthcare providers. Healthcare providers, because the first OSHA emergency temporary standard issued last spring solely pertained to healthcare, federal contractors, because of a rule that came out uh, this fall or late summer, can't remember which. So these are all new things. And uh, the regulation gets prescriptive about some things that have to be done to collect those records. Another new thing is reasonable paid time off to get vaccinated and to recover. Paid time off. You have to pay people up to four hours to go get the shot uh, each time. And then you have to give them up to uh, two days of recovery time. The pay for the four hours is straight pay. You got to do it at their normal pay rate. The Recovery time, you can use any sick bank time, but if there is no sick bank time, then you got to give them paid time for that. That's all new. Yeah. Um, Then employers have to make a decision regarding whether they are going to have a testing option or not. It is abundantly clear that OSHA doesn't want you to have a testing option. They want you to have a vaccine or else mandate. However, If you're going to have a testing option, OSHA is making it very inconvenient for both parties. They're making it inconvenient for the employee because they have to go out and get one weekly and uh, probably at their own expense. And it ain't just some little self-service thing. It has to be a third-party test or it needs to be proctored. Uh, So that's probably going to be fairly expensive. And you have to repeat it every seven days pretty much. From the employer's standpoint, you have to <clears throat> you have to administer all this and collect and retain records of every such instance, every such test. These medical records need to be kept separate from a typical employee file. Okay, uh, and they are full of personally identifiable, protected health information, and so they can't just float around in the company. The access to it needs to be strictly controlled. But the big difference is that your typical HR operation at any given time is only dealing with a fraction of the workforce that happens to be sick or out on disability or what have you. Now you've got to collect info on everybody. I see. Literally everybody. Yet, on the one hand, you have to have this comprehensive information. More on that in a moment. But on the other, all the obligations regarding privacy are still in place. So that's no small trick to have an administrative infrastructure. So let's say you're a construction company and you're out at various sites, okay? You've got to collect this info somehow from all the people wherever you're working. But then you need to minimize the exposure to it and get it all centralized. And the reason you have to get it all centralized is you have to create logs. Um, If a worker or a so-called employee representative parenthesis, union, and parenthesis, 
asks for it, you have to give them. Uh, Allie, how many people at a given work site are, uh, are not vaccinated? But you can't give specific personal info in the course of doing that. So you need, uh, by the rule, to have a, a log or a register of all the people and, and the vaccination status of all of them. Yet, you have to keep your workforce, including your office employees and what have you, um, away from whether John Doe or Mary Doe is or isn't vaccinated. You have to respect the privacy of that. That's no small trick. And so that's something that HR operations are going to have to figure out how to how to configure it. And um, you know, I think many of them will will use technology that has um, access privileges that are controlled in order to do that. Uh, it's going to be hard to do it without that sort of technology because the log potentially is going to change practically every day, especially in the early months as you collect vaccination evidence, uh, not just a first dose, but a second dose, or as you collect uh, testing info. And by the way, um, if you don't refresh the, the, the negative test info every seven days, <clears throat> then that person has to be excluded from the workforce. So it's a dynamic daily rolling process. Once yeah. again, evidence OSHA really doesn't want you to go that route. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. The, the technology that you talk, talk about, I mean, you know, it, it, this isn't, you're not referring to just password protected access to, to a database. I mean, it's something more than that. They don't get specific. What they care about is the end result. Right. Uh, so it, that might work. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, a construction company isn't going to be subject to HIPAA, you know, Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. Uh, and, and so some of the privacy regulations there aren't in place, but, you know, at the end of the day, you got to minimize the access to this info and you get to figure out how you make that happen. Yeah. Minimize the access. And yet at the same time, always have access. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. And be ready to respond to these requirements, these inquiries, uh, within the prescribed timeframes. You got like a day to do it. If as an employer. You, in effect, decide, well, I'm going to have a hardcore mandate. I'm going to live up to the letter of the law here. I'm going to have all these rules and policies in place. But uh, I'll kind of nod, winks, skate around it by being very liberal and granting exceptions. At some point, that could or will get you in trouble. So the exceptions are... Um, if it's medically contraindicated, in other words, a, 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 a physician says, nope, um, because um, uh, of some current medical circumstance, this, this employee uh, shouldn't get it. Um, second, a medical necessity requires a delay in vaccination. Let's say you're getting your appendix out or something like that. Uh, or thirdly or fourth would be uh, accommodations because of either a disability or religion. And it's that last one, the religious disability or the religious exception, that's going to be the more the more interesting one. So there, there's longstanding um, exceptions under the 
Americans with Disabilities Act uh, for, for disability exceptions. And HR departments are pretty well-versed in the interactive process that's required to determine whether uh, such an accommodation is required. That accommodation only must be given uh, if it doesn't put uh, fellow workers at undue risk and if it doesn't pose an undue hardship. Similarly, for the religious uh, exception, uh, there's a concern that a whole bunch of people will newly find religion and try to skate around this by citing a religious exemption. Um, so the EEOC has put out rules in that regard. And there is guidance regarding what constitutes a, a religious exception. In general, the standard is that it needs to be a sincerely held belief on the part of the employee. Uh, and it need not be based in uh, a, a, a well-known religion or anything like that. Um, what matters is the sincerity of the employee. And the employer is entitled to uh, ask the person questions to determine whether the belief is sincere. But there needs to be a presumption that the belief is sincere. But if the employee has behaved in an inconsistent manner, uh, if the employee has not refused other sorts of vaccinations, uh, if there's too convenient of a tie between current circumstances and the request, or you know the timing is suspect, or otherwise the employer has reason to believe that the accommodation is suspect, then they could deny that. The point here is that if a given uh, employer has a peculiarly high percentage of people getting religious accommodations, uh, that's going to that's going to attract attention sooner or later. Thanks so much to claimants Gary Pierce for his interesting discussion of the potential impacts of OSHA's COVID-19 emergency temporary standard. And thanks for listening. Find a link below to part two of this Digging Deeper podcast where Gary outlines priorities contractors should be working at right now to prepare for a quick implementation of the standard. And as always, you keep listening and we'll keep digging.